Father God, uh, we ask that we look at your inspired and errant word, that you would speak to us that we would know truth, and not only to hear truth, but as James warns, not to be hearers of the word only, but doers as well. And so apply your truth to our hearts. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Perhaps you have heard of the St. Bartholomew's Massacre. It occurred August 24, 1572 in France. Maybe you've heard of it, but the details are kind of, well, you've forgotten a little bit about it. So allow me to share a little bit about the St. Bartholomew's Massacre. At the time, France was the most populous country in Europe. It was not only the most populous country, it was the most adherent country to what was then the universal church, not Catholic, not Protestant, but the universal church in France. In fact, it housed the second papal palace. There was the papal palace in Rome, and there was the papal palace in Avignon, France. And they had a motto, one law, one king, one church. And really, the church was over the monarchy and controlled the monarchy at that point in France. And what happened, you have to back up about 1550 years to 1520, a man named Jacob Lafleur, he translated the Bible into French. And for the first time, French people could read the Bible in their own language. Up to this point, the universal church, not Protestant, not Catholic, the universal church controlled what the people heard about Scripture. They controlled what they did and did not know about God. But suddenly, the Bible is translated into the French language. Now, that didn't help most people because at this point, France is mostly under a feudal agrarian society that kept people in poverty and illiterate. But there was the aristocracy, many of whom became known as Huguenots. And they began to read the Bible in their own language. And the Huguenots believed in their opinion that they had been taught many things that were not true and that they had been taught a very small sliver of what was true from Scripture. And so they began to devour the Word of God. Also about this time, in 1541, a Frenchman released his magisterial institutes of the Christian religion in French. And so the French people not only had the Bible, but now they had a theology in their language. And again, the Huguenots believed that what they had been taught was insufficient. So this was now an attack on the universal church. It was also an attack on the monarchy. It was an attack on one law, one king, one faith. And so what began to happen is that the monarchy outlawed the Huguenots from teaching and reading the Word of God. In fact, they began to tell the agrarian, feudal French men and women that if you spy on a Huguenot and you catch him or her reading the Word of God or telling others about the Word of God, 
bring it to our attention, and you will receive a reward. And when the Huguenots were brought before the authorities, they were given one chance to recant their faith. If they did not recant their faith, all of their possessions were taken from them, and they were put to death. And this was the deal. When their possessions were taken from them, if you turned them in, you got a third of what they owned. And a third went to the local government, and a third went to the church. How effective was this system? Well, by the time we get to the Bartholomew Massacre, the church owns 40% of all the land in France. So it's quite effective. So what happens on August 24, 1572? We have the highest ranking admiral in the French uh, system, de Nibo, and, and this man is a Huguenot. His name is Gesper. And Gesper, with ironically church bells playing in the background, is put to death. And the mobs wonder what's going to happen. And a messenger from the king cries out, it is the will of the king. And suddenly the mobs go wild. Not only in Paris, but in all of France. And the river Seine turns red with blood. In fact, there is so much blood poured into the river Seine that they will not be able to eat fish out of the river sign for the next two years. Historians aren't sure how many Huguenots are put to death. The low estimate is 12,000. The high estimate is well over 100,000. Most historians believe on that day 70,000 Huguenots are put to death. Why? Because they want to read the word of God. They're willing not to recant their faith. They are so committed to God, they are so committed to understanding the word of God that they are willing to give up their temporal life because they are so convinced of an eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. That's how committed they are to the word of God. Now at Highland, our vision statement has three words. And then a tagline. That's what's going to happen in the next four weeks. Connect, grow, go. Helping us take the next step in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Connect one with another. Grow in Christ. And then gracefully go and share our faith with others. All of which helps us take the next step in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Today in Wausau, I'm going to talk about grow. And I want to pick up and I want to read from 2 Timothy 3.14 all the way to 4.4. 4. 2 Timothy 3, starting in verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it. And how from childhood, I'm going to argue that's the Greek word brephos, it really means infancy, and how from infancy you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man 
there are two main words in the Greek language for man. There is andros, which means male, and there is anthropos, which means mankind or person. That's what this is. That the person, male or female of God, may be competent, equipped for every good work. And I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearance and his kingdom, preach the word. Do we need anything more in the text? Preach the word. You know, Jeff thinks this music stuff is necessary. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander into all kinds of myths. I love how the verse begins, verse 14, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it. Paul is writing to a young Timothy, a man that will become mighty in the word of God. And Timothy, according to Acts 16.1, did not have a father who believed in Jesus Christ. But according to 2 Timothy 1.5, he had a mother, Lois, and a grandmother, Eunice, who not only believed in Jesus Christ, but poured Scripture into young Timothy's life. I love it. Some of us, perhaps, are in mixed marriages. Perhaps you're in a mixed marriage where you're a believer in Christ and your spouse is not. Or you're on fire for the Lord and your, your spouse is a little less hot for Jesus. Don't have an impression that you need to walk lightly on the Word of God. Teach your children. Teach your grandchildren. If your spouse says to you, you know, it's Sunday, we ought to go and do X, Y, Z rather than you go to church, say, no, no. We can do that after church, but, but I serve a higher authority. And the authority I serve is Jesus Christ. That's what Timothy had. He may have had an unbelieving father, but he had a believing mother and a believing grandmother, and they poured Scripture into his life. In addition to that, young Timothy had a mentor. His name was Paul. That's a pretty good mentor, if you ask me. Now, like many of you, I've had mentors in my life. Growing up, I not only had my parents mentoring me, and they did, but we had two pastors in the church I grew up in that took special interest in me and mentored me. Then I got off to college, and there was a New Testament scholar on the faculty, Dr. David Mead, and he took special interest in me. In fact, I lived in the basement of his home for the last couple years of college. And then I went on to graduate school and doctoral studies, and, and I had people like Dr. Grudem, Wayne Grudem, and D.A. Carson, and uh, Doug Moo, and Howard Hendricks, these individuals build into my life. And, and in turn, I have the opportunity perhaps to build into the lives of others. And that's the way it ought to be in all of our lives. We ought to be finding people who can mentor us. And we ought to be finding people that we can mentor to help people take the next step in the relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what happened with young Timothy. There was a rabbi who wrote many years ago in the Mishnah 
that at age five, a child is fit to be mentored with the Word of God. I disagree with that. Five is five years too late. We ought to be mentoring our children from the moment in which they are born. Praise the Lord for mothers and fathers and grandmothers and grandfathers and nursery school workers who pray over these kids, who, who teach these kids the truths of God. I think of my granddaughter, Ray Ray. Ray Ray's uh, about 27 months old. I don't want to start mentoring Ray Ray at 27 months. I want to mentor her at day one. And so if you see us in my backyard and me pushing her on a swing, we're going back and forth between us singing the wheels on the bus go round and round. That's her favorite song. And she sings delightfully. Her grandfather not so much. And then in between our verses... I'm teaching her verses of scripture. I've been teaching them to her since she was one or two days old. And for the first time, two weeks ago, I discovered what I've wondered. Does she know them? Because now she starts saying some of them with me. And so I've been teaching her John 3.16 and John 14.6. And Romans 3.23 and Romans 6.23 in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, and a, another half dozen verses. And I've been teaching her a little catechism. I shared with you the book, but we have it memorized because she's really not always near the book, and it's accounting. And so we go through this. There's one God. Jesus has two natures, fully God and fully man. God is three persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. There are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's five books of the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. There's six days of creation. God said, let there be light, and there is light. There are seven I am statements. One of the verses I give her, I am the bread of life. Uh, there are eight Beatitudes, and so I teach her, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. There are nine fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And there are ten commandments, and we go through the ten commandments. And almost invariably, I get to nine, and I can't remember the tenth. And it rotates. It rotates. I can't wait until she can cite all ten, because at any given moment, I get nine. But there are ten. I'm pretty confident of that. It's never too early to catechize our children. What does 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 say? All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. I love that, breathed out by God. Theonoustos. Theo, theos, God, noustos, the breath of God. What it's saying is that when we have the human authors writing scripture, God is breathing through them. He's using their vocabulary, their experiences, but exactly what he wills for them to say to the smallest jot and tittle, the smallest letters of the Greek alphabet, those are the very words that he brought forth in the 66 books. 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21 
They put it this way, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Theonoustos, God breathed in and through them. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this. That when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. A couple of months ago, I was preaching through 1 Corinthians. I'm going to go back to that. We'll finish that book. But I was preaching one of those sermons on morality. And I got a lot of feedback. And then I got an anonymous note in my mailbox. And, and I read everything that's given to me. And uh, it was by a, a very sincere person and uh, very kind words, but disagreeing with what I had said. And in the note, the individual wanted me to understand that I needed to learn science better, and that if God's word had been written during an age of scientific enlightenment, what God called sin, he would not call sin. And I would like to say that I don't think the issue between that individual's opinion and mine is one of science. The issue is one of Scripture, actually. I believe Scripture is inspired. And I believe that God is all-knowing. He's omniscient. I don't believe God is waiting with bated breath for science to reveal so that he can correct his morality or correct mine. I believe God created morality with all insight from eternity past to eternity future. He already knows what we will discover or what we will believe. In spite of that, he has declared what is right and what is wrong because he's the creator of morality and he does it for his glory and he does it for our betterment. That's what it means for God's word to be inspired, for God to breathe through the human authors to speak to us. And verse 16 says he gives a scripture for teaching and rebuking. That's orthodoxy. We always have to start with orthodoxy, theology. Sometimes people say, well, I'm not really interested in theology. I just want to know how to live. Well, we can't know how to live unless we have right thinking. That's what orthodoxy is. Orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. Right thinking should lead to right action. So orthodoxy is things like inspiration, God-breathing, or inerrancy, the truthfulness, or that Jesus is fully God and fully man, the hypostatic union between him. The Trinity, God is three in one, that is orthodoxy. Orthopraxy is because of who this great God is and what he has written, he then tells me how I ought to live as an act of right worship back to him. That's orthopraxy. That's the, the part of correction and training in righteousness. Although I don't have a copy of it, I, I love the way the New Living Translation translates the word correction. It, they translate, it straightens me out. And that's what this boy needs. As I understand who God is, and I understand the word of God... 
that orthodoxy, it should lead to orthopraxy and it should straighten the young boy out. You see, it's not enough to know Scripture. I need to live it out. You remember what Luke 12, 48 says, to whom much is given, much more is expected. To whom they have entrusted much, they will demand all the more. It's a dangerous thing to learn about God because as I learn about God, that makes me more culpable in the presence of God to obey all that he has taught my head and my heart. And the result of living out scripture is verse 17. Let me read again. That the man, Anthropos, the person of God, may be competent, equipped for every good work. I really love the way the psalmist puts it. Psalm 19, 7-9. The law of the Lord is perfect, which revives my soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, that makes the simple one wise. The precepts of the Lord are right, which should cause rejoicing in my heart. The command of the Lord is pure. It should enlighten, it should open my eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, and it should endure in my life forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous all together. These are the God-promised benefits of being in the Word. As I think about this, I think of an evangelist named Robert Sumner who wrote about the greatness of the Word of God. And in his book, in Robert's book, he tells about a man from Kansas who tragically was involved in an explosion, an industrial explosion at work. And it took this man's eyes and it took his hands And it was just a horrific, horrific explosion. And this man was a born-again believer. He loved the Lord. But he could no longer see. And he could no longer touch for Braille. And his hearing had been impacted as well. But he wanted to read the Word of God. And he heard about a woman in England that had learned to read Braille with her lips. So he sent away for Braille and... He sent away for a Braille Bible, and he tried to to master it with his lips, but he discovered that the industrial accident had also damaged the nerve endings of his lips. But day after day, he would bring the Braille letters up to his lips, hoping that he would be able to feel them. And one day as he did that, he inadvertently stuck his tongue out, and he realized he could feel the Braille with his tongue. And he taught himself to read with his tongue. And at the time of Robert Sumner's book, he had read from Genesis to Revelation four times with his tongue. How about you? How about me? How much of God's word are we soaking in, allowing to impact our lives? You see, knowing scripture is a command. Living out scripture is a command, and sharing it with others is a command. Let me again read from chapter 4 this time. I'll read verses 2 to 4. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. (coughs) Excuse me. With complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, 
but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to truth and wander off into all kinds of myths. Now we might say, phew, I am so glad it says preach the word because that's not me. I don't need a microphone. I don't want to be up on a platform. I don't want to speak to others. I'm not called to preach. The problem is that the language used, Kirkson taught logon, doesn't really mean you need a microphone and you need a platform and you have notes and, and you talk to people. It means share what's on your heart. And that's all of us. All of us who have been transformed by Christ have the obligation in season when we plan on it and out of season when we don't expect it to share what Christ has done in our lives. A model of this was Dr. John Calvin. Now I know by just saying that, some of you put me on pause. Because those are like swear words in your vocabulary. Dr. John Calvin. Four-letter words. But may I say I've never lived in a place ever that has so misunderstood Dr. Calvin as in central Wisconsin. Ever. I've never lived in a place that has turned a great reformer into a four-letter word because of all sorts of misunderstandings of who he was and is. You think of him and you say, oh, he was dogmatic, he was angry. He was dogmatic, but he wasn't angry. In fact, he was shy, he was reticent. He never, ever wanted to speak publicly. You say, well, he's the guy that insisted on predestination and everything. Well, it is a biblical word, you know. But actually what he taught was this. You never teach on predestination, ever, unless the text uses the word. That's what he actually taught. He would grieve that there is a theology named after him. That is not the John Calvin of history. Not even close. He was an ivory tower man who never wanted to speak publicly. How did he become a preacher? There was a reformer named William Farrell, who was a fiery guy, who came to John Calvin's study in Geneva and said, God has called you to preach. And John Calvin said, no. And William Farrell wouldn't let it go and actually called down curses from heaven on John Calvin's life. It's in the foreword to his Psalms commentaries. And he was so taken back by that that he felt the call of God to preach. But you know what you ought to know about Calvin? Whether you like his theology or you don't. Or you like who he is or you don't. His mark on history, more than anything else, is exegetical preaching. That's what he was. He didn't preach a theology. He didn't preach a certain doctrine. In fact, he taught not to do that. He said, go book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. That's how he taught. And that's the mark of a man who is ready in season and out of season to give an answer for the hope that is within one. 
to know the word, to go through the word. Few will ever impact the world like a Calvin. But all of us are called to speak Bible. All of us are called to be ready in season and out of season. All of us are called to give an answer because we live in a day where people will not endure sound teaching. They have itching ears. They accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And we're called to know the word, grow in the word, live out the word, and share the word with others. At what age should biblical teaching begin? Infancy, brephos, infancy at the moment a child is born. At what age do we stop learning scripture? Never. So how do we proceed to learn scripture? There's lots of ways. We ought to regularly be in a place where we're taught. We ought to be in the word like ourselves. The Huguenots gave up their lives to read the word. Think about that. A man who was blinded and deafened and lost his limbs learned to read the word with the tongue. We need to be in the word. Where would we start? My suggestion is Matthew. Lots of people say John. Actually, John is by far the most complex of the four Gospels because he uses a lot of words in very unusual ways. Start in Matthew, but it doesn't matter. Start somewhere and keep reading. You come to a book you don't understand, you heard it here, skip it. You can come back to it. Don't get bogged down in a book you don't understand, which will cause you and I to give up reading. Get a study Bible. I've got three of them. Not because I got money to buy three. I need three of them. Trust me. Up here is a study Bible. It happens to be the Reformation Bible. If I don't know what the text says, and I'm reading it on my own, I don't have commentaries, I just read what the authors have written. They're generally right, and they generally help me. Find a Sunday school class or a small group. Mentor someone. Find someone to mentor you, me. Connect with others. Grow in Christ, and then go and graciously share the truth with others. This helps us to take the next step in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, uh, none of us are finished work. We're all far from being finished works. But thank you that you're patient with us, that you've given us your inspired and errant word to study. <clears throat> that every time we study it, we learn something new. But as James says, may we not be hearers of the word only, but doers as well, and help us to apply it. And Father, although I teased about the music worship, I'm thankful for it and the opportunity to corporately sing our praises and our worship of you. You are so worthy. Father, help us to know the word, to live it out, to grow and to share, and to respond in acts of worship, including music worship. We praise you, and you are worthy of it. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.